Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. A new true crime podcast from the team behind Up and Vanished. In 2016, adventurer Justin Alexander was invited on a trek by an Indian holy man. They headed to a spiritual ground in the Himalayan mountains, a place beyond civilization. The holy man returned and said nothing, but Justin was never seen again. What happened to him? Dive into our investigation in Status Untraced. Available now. Listen for free on Spotify. On January 15, 1919, Isaac Gonzalez was overseeing a delivery of molasses into one of Purity Distilling Company's enormous storage tanks, a rusty steel behemoth that could hold two million gallons of the sticky substance. The giant tank was along the shore of Boston's North End Wharf. The North End was the city's busiest district, as it was home to many businesses and sat at the edge of Boston's most densely populated neighborhood. The region around the city was home to many distilleries that processed molasses, a major export of the sun-soaked Caribbean islands to the south. The shipping trade made Boston Harbor one of the busiest ports in the Western Hemisphere. Gonzalez felt the enormous tank shudder and groan every time a new shipment of molasses was pumped into it. Whenever he climbed inside the empty tank to check the outflow pipes, he emerged covered in bits of steel that had flaked off the inside walls. He saw firsthand how desperately the tank needed restoring. When Gonzalez discovered leaks along the side of the tank, he reported it to his superiors at Purity. But his concerns were ignored. Millions of gallons of molasses flowed in and out of that tank on a weekly basis. Interrupting the flow for repairs would cost the company in lost profits. Gonzalez feared that the crumbling tank would collapse at the worst moment possible, while at full capacity with millions of gallons of tar-like molasses. That nightmare would soon become a sticky, suffocating reality. Welcome to Natural Disasters, a ParCast original. I'm your host, Kate. And I'm Tim. Every Thursday, we'll explore the moments in history when the natural world turned deadly. You can find all episodes of Natural Disasters and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Natural Disasters for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Natural Disasters in the search bar. At ParCast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. 
let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. This is our first of two episodes on the Great Molasses Flood of 1919, a fatal deluge caused by the collapse of a storage tank that sent 2.3 million gallons of molasses rushing down the streets of Boston. This week, we'll outline the history of the sugar trade in the New World and the construction of the deadly molasses tank. We'll also examine how cost-cutting created the perfect circumstances for disaster on the fateful morning of the collapse. Next week, we'll cover the flood and its immediate aftermath, cleanup efforts that took months, catastrophically disrupting commerce in one of America's busiest ports. From the 16th century onward, the Caribbean sugar trade flowed through Boston Harbor. Raw sugar and molasses were harvested on the islands of the West Indies and brought to New England for processing. Finished products were then shipped off to Europe and the rest of the United States, where they fetched high prices. The molasses distillation industry was a thriving career, and 35-year-old Arthur P. Gell was a veteran of the trade. He spent his entire career keeping books for prominent distilleries around the country, such as Hiram Walker and Sons, the makers of Canadian Club Whiskey. Arthur moved to Boston to become the secretary of the Purity Distilling Company in 1909. Two years later, he was promoted to treasurer and soon began overseeing construction of the company's newest molasses tank on Commercial Street. He would soon become a driving force behind the company's ambitious plans for growth. The tank was simply the beginning for Arthur's ambitions in Boston's molasses trade. Molasses was a particularly valuable commodity at the turn of the 20th century, as it could be processed into ethanol, a major ingredient in the production of dynamite and other explosives. When World War I broke out in Europe in 1914, the demand for ethanol skyrocketed. And in turn, so did the demand for molasses. Purity became a major supplier for arms factories in the U.S., Britain, France, and Canada. If, or when, the United States entered the war, the executives at Purity knew it would up the pressure to import even more molasses. They would have trouble keeping up, but the company vision was entirely clouded by a hunger for profits. For weapons manufacturers, war meant money, and those manufacturers needed ethanol. Purity's new storage tank was ideally placed, sandwiched between Boston's busy inner harbor and freight rail lines that ran through the North End. These lines would carry molasses from Purity's storage tank to its distillery roughly two miles away in East Cambridge, Massachusetts. It was to be the largest storage tank in New England, standing at 50 feet tall, 90 feet in diameter, and 240 feet in circumference. The tank was built from seven steel plates, stacked on top of each other vertically and fastened together with rivets. The completed tank resembled a giant can of tuna, and it could hold more than two million gallons of molasses. But before the construction was even finished, tragedy struck the project. On the morning of December 8, 1915, 35-year-old Thomas DeFreitas fell from a staging plank inside the tank. With no safety harness, he plunged four stories through the empty, cavernous space to his death. DeFreitas was one of Purity's many laborers. 
Much of the company's labor pool consisted of largely unskilled and illiterate new arrivals to America. Arthur felt bad about the death, especially as he recalled the man's scream and his friend's tears as they pulled his broken body from inside the steel shell. But Arthur was more distraught by the fact that the accident cost him a half day's worth of labor. Unbowed by the tragedy, Arthur added more men to the crew. Up to 30 laborers toiled all day at the tank site. He even added electrical lights to the interior so that laborers could work into the night. But aside from labor delays, weather was an issue. Between late autumn and early spring, New England has an unpredictable climate. On December 13, 1915, Boston was hit by a vicious storm that brought gale-force winds. Newspapers called it a superstorm, the worst in more than a decade. It dumped more than 20 inches of snow across Massachusetts, with heavy rain and a driving sleet inundating Boston itself. The flooding stopped traffic and delayed trains. Winds knocked down electrical power lines. Construction on the giant molasses tank came to a halt for two whole days while the storm raged. Work resumed on December 15th and carried on through Christmas Day at a similar pace. There was no time for any more delays. A steamer ship was headed to Boston with millions of gallons of molasses on board. It would stop in New York and offload about half a million gallons. The rest would go up to Boston. If the Commercial Street tank wasn't ready to accept the remainder, the ship would have to find another location for it or dump the product at sea. Pressure was mounting for the Purity Distilling Company to finish its tank. Arthur Gell began looking for ways to speed up the process, even if it meant cutting a few crucial corners. For Arthur, the costs were also reputational. He was personally embarrassed by how long the tank was taking to build. He was humiliated in front of his superiors and worried he might lose his job. Arthur Gell was not about to forfeit his career after so much investment. He promised the tank would be finished no later than December 31, 1915. In late December, as the deadline loomed closer, Arthur started getting desperate and cutting corners. The contract with the project's steel supplier mandated that the tank had to be tested for leaks upon its completion. That meant filling it up to the top with water. Arthur knew it would take days to fill the tank completely. He was out of time. Instead, he had the crews fill it with only six inches of water. No leaks occurred, but this was only one-eighth the tank's capacity. No one knew how it would hold up when completely filled. Still... Arthur pronounced the tank structurally sound and ready for use. It was a decision that would have disastrous consequences. Next, Arthur Gell's insistence on cutting corners would bring the commercial street tank to the brink of collapse. Now back to the story. It was 1915, and Arthur Gell, treasurer of the Purity Distilling Company in Boston, was charged with overseeing the construction of a two million gallon storage tank for pre-processed molasses. On December 31st, a massive tanker arrived in Boston Harbor from Cuba. The ship was carrying over half a million gallons of molasses. It proceeded to pump 13 feet of the substance into the new tank. 
The project was officially finished, just in time for the United States' formal entry into World War I. With a new tank open for business, Purity was ready to import more molasses than ever before, even if it meant keeping the tank constantly filled. Week after week, steamers pulled into Boston Harbor from Cuba, Jamaica, and Puerto Rico, groaning under the weight of so much molasses. On multiple occasions, the tank reached its maximum capacity, two million gallons, in order to keep up with wartime demand. Overseer Isaac Gonzalez watched as the ships offloaded gallon after gallon of their sticky, precious cargo. He had spent much of his working life around the substance. He was born on the island of Puerto Rico and for years worked on steamer ships transporting molasses between neighboring Cuba and the United States. When Purity hired him as an overseer, he was determined to work hard and exceed expectations. He developed a sharp eye for problems with the commercial street tank. Soon after its completion, he began noticing molasses seeping from between the seams in the steel. The gooey brown liquid appeared along the rivet lines and ran down the side of the tank, pooling along the bottom. The sounds coming from inside were deeper, more ominous than what was typical to most molasses storage tanks. They made the hairs on his neck stand up. He believed the sounds meant the molasses inside was expanding and contracting erratically. The pressure was building against the tank as the millions of gallons of molasses shifted. And he feared the tank was not adequately constructed to handle those shifts. It could hold two million gallons of cold molasses, but was not equipped to handle that volume at higher temperatures. Some liquids expand and contract with changes in temperature. Water expands when frozen, which is why some beverages, when placed in the freezer, will shatter inside glass bottles if left unattended. Molasses behaves in the opposite way. At colder temperatures, molasses is thick and syrupy. But when it's warm, molasses becomes more fluid and it expands in volume. When a liquid's volume expands in a sealed container, pressure inside that container increases too. More stress is exerted against the walls and the likelihood of collapse is higher. This collapse is exactly what Isaac Gonzalez feared most. With the storage tank filled to capacity, the molasses had nowhere to go if it warmed up and expanded. Gonzalez voiced his concerns to superiors at the Purity Distilling Company, including Arthur Gell. He informed Gell that as the company filled the tank to maximum capacity, they risked a collapse if the temperature rose and the molasses expanded. Whenever he went to Arthur Gell's office, however, the treasurer waved his worries away. Molasses storage was a messy business, he told Gonzalez. Leaks, rust, and odd noises were to be expected. Gonzalez even went so far as to show up unannounced at the Purity Distilling Company's corporate offices in Cambridge, Massachusetts. He demanded to speak with someone about his concerns surrounding the tank's viability. But Gonzalez knew the tank simply could not handle being filled to near capacity on such a regular basis, especially in the winter months when temperatures fluctuated wildly. But no one at the Purity Distilling Company would listen to him. Isaac Gonzalez was forced to sit on his hands and watch with growing apprehension as the commercial street tank deteriorated before his very eyes. After Gonzalez's unauthorized visit to his office, Arthur Gell was enraged. 
He could not believe that Gonzalez had the audacity to keep questioning the structural integrity of his tank. He ordered William White to keep a tighter leash on Gonzalez, and he made it clear to both of them that he would not tolerate any further troublemaking at the Commercial Street site. There was too much money at stake. Gonzalez was forced to be quiet for the time being, but his gut told him it was a matter of when, not if, the tank collapses and spills millions of gallons of molasses down on the residents of Boston's North End. More troubling than the leaks, though, were the noises being emitted from deep inside the tank. Low rumbles, like a distant storm gathering. It was almost as if the giant steel tank were a living thing, a monster. And it was growling, preparing to attack. But the people of Boston's North End were blissfully unaware of the danger they faced. They went about their daily business as a great grumbling tank towered above them, churning its contents uneasily in the volatile New England weather. Nobody knew that the grumbling sounds were a final warning of the impending disaster. Coming up, Isaac Gonzalez makes an ill-fated last-ditch effort to stop the flood. Now, back to the story. The year was 1916. Employees of the Purity Distilling Company in Boston had begun noticing structural problems with its massive 2 million gallon storage tank built in the city's crowded North End. Isaac Gonzalez, an overseer for the company, had tried to warn management that regularly filling the tank to capacity with full shipments of molasses from Boston Harbor was causing it to deteriorate at an alarming pace. The tank had begun to spring leaks. Mounting liquid pressure from inside had begun to force sticky rivers of molasses out between the rapidly rusting, peeling steel seams. Management ignored Gonzalez's pleas. They were blinded by the massive profits Purity was raking in at the outset of World War I. And besides making a profit, they had other dangerous issues to worry about. In December of 1916, anarchist terrorists set off a dynamite bomb that ripped through Boston's North End police station, just around the corner from Purity's molasses storage tank. The detonation was so forceful that it shattered every window pane on the street. Not long afterwards, Boston police received a letter from an anonymous group of anarchists operating in New York City. It instructed them to check under a storage tank in Brooklyn owned by U.S. Industrial Alcohol, Purity's parent company. Sure enough, an explosive device was found. The threats were real. William White, the most senior overseer at the Commercial Street Tank, believed Purity's facilities in the North End were at high risk for a similar attack. The tank was easily the neighborhood's most inviting target for anti-war and anarchist radicals. He speculated that the groups were opposed to Purity's relationship with pro-war munitions manufacturers at home and abroad. Until now, Purity had largely ignored pleas from Isaac Gonzalez to construct a fence around its Commercial Street tank. But a bombing around the corner changed things. Arthur Gell ordered that a fence be installed around the tank site's perimeter. This small precaution was not enough to satisfy Isaac Gonzalez. The company was finally heeding his advice on one safety matter, but continued to ignore the greatest threat to the Commercial Street tank 
its structural integrity. Although the domestic political situation remained worrisome, the financial outlook for the Purity Distilling Company was looking sunny. The Federal Council of National Defense had created the General Munitions Board to oversee weapons and equipment production for the U.S. Army and Navy, coordinate military purchases, and assist the manufacturers in acquiring raw materials. Arthur saw a dazzling opportunity to prove to the U.S. government that the Commercial Street tank could handle soaring production quotas. The only person that stood in his way was Isaac Gonzalez. By 1918, Gonzalez had been making regular reports to Arthur and other superiors at the Purity Distilling Company about the Commercial Street tank's supposed structural deficiencies. Gonzalez alleged that so much molasses was leaking from the tank that it had begun to collect in giant pools around the base. Children from the neighborhood would dip sticks into them and slurp up the sticky, sweet substance like lollipops. Their parents lived and worked throughout the North End, in the shadow of Purity's massive storage tank. They owned shops and bakeries and hung clothes out to dry between the upper floors of rickety tenements. Though the North End was an industrial center of Boston, it was also a place where families built lives and assumed they could do so free from the threat of catastrophe. Gonzalez told superiors he spread sand around the tank's base to slow the spread of leakage, but he simply could not keep up with the amount dripping from the structure on a daily basis. Arthur began to view the overseer as paranoid. Leakage was normal in a large tank. He worried Gonzalez was exaggerating the risks and could jeopardize both his and the company's future success by needlessly panicking executives and shareholders. When Gonzalez told Arthur he had begun sleeping at the tank site so he could sound the alarm in the event of collapse, the treasurer was convinced his colleague had lost his mind. Unfortunately for Arthur, firing Gonzalez was not an option. The man was an experienced overseer and knew the molasses business well. And with so many men enlisting to fight in the war in Europe, Arthur didn't have the time or resources to train someone new. At the same time, the American munitions industry was pumping out materials at its fastest pace yet. According to historian Stephen Puglio, between April 1917 and November 1918, U.S. production of TNT and other explosives was more than 40% larger than Britain's and nearly double that of France for all of 1918. Companies like Purity Distilling and U.S. Industrial Alcohol were reaping in unprecedented profits. In 1918, the Commercial Street Molasses Tank reached the 2 million gallon level seven different times, often when the contents were cold and unexpanded. Isaac Gonzalez was working harder than ever. He was utterly exhausted, but this had less to do with the intensity of the work than the lack of sleep he was getting at night. Though he no longer slept on site, he often checked on the facility in the wee hours of the morning. But Gonzalez was not the only one to notice problems with the tank. Aside from the neighborhood children who snacked on the leaking molasses, firefighters talked about it in the mornings as they gathered outside the nearby firehouse and prepared to launch their patrol boat into Boston Harbor. A stableman for Boston's paving department asked Gonzalez what was going on inside the tank. It sounded like the molasses was bubbling and threatening to boil over. 
Another worker told Gonzalez he liked to lean up against the side of the tank to feel the vibrations against his back. He described it as though the tank were bulging in and out, breathing like a great dragon, preparing to belch flames into the sky. It had soon become common knowledge around the North End that the commercial street tank seemed to leak more molasses than it held. When the rumor mill reached the ears of Arthur Gell, he saw yet another potential public relations problem. When Isaac Gonzalez turned up to work on a morning in August of 1918, he was thrilled to see that the rivers of thick molasses seemed to have disappeared from the sides of the tank. In the morning sunlight, it dazzled, looking brand new and more than capable of holding the next shipment of molasses. It appeared his higher-ups had finally taken his warning seriously and ordered some much-needed maintenance. But upon further inspection of the walls, Gonzalez's heart sank. The leaking molasses was not gone. It, along with the entire tank exterior, had been covered in a fresh coat of paint. To the naked eye, the molasses blended in with the metal around it. But it was still there, dripping silently and insidiously into growing pools at the tank's feet. For Isaac Gonzalez, it was clear that the management at Purity had no interest in addressing the threat a deteriorating tank posed to its workforce and the surrounding neighborhood. The next month, Gonzalez resigned his post and enlisted in the army. This would likely save his life, though others in the North End would not be so lucky. In his absence, Gonzalez's terrifying premonitions would come true. On January 13, 1919, a shipment of Caribbean molasses was loaded into the tank. It brought the total to 2.3 million gallons, marking the eighth time in a year that the tank was loaded to maximum capacity. And the temperature was extremely low, which kept the molasses thick and tightly compacted. Two days later, the air temperature rose rapidly from 2 to 41 degrees Fahrenheit. The molasses inside the commercial street tank went from thick pudding to runny syrup and expanded in volume. On that warm January 15th, the sun rose on a north end humming with its usual activity. The elevated train trundled overhead, filling the neighborhood with its familiar low-grade rumble. The train and the tank often sounded similar. Nobody was concerned by the rumbles in the streets anymore. Shopkeepers opened their doors wide, and housewives beat dusty carpets from the fire escapes of their tenement homes. Children shouted with frivolity as they played in the streets, poking sticks into the sticky pools of runny molasses that ran down the side of the commercial street tank. A little before noon, Boston police patrolman Frank McManus was making his rounds, greeting the familiar faces that appeared out of shop doors and behind windows. As he neared the end of his morning shift, he cast about for a call box to file his daily report. He picked up a phone on the corner of commercial and salutation and dialed the nearest station. As he exchanged pleasantries with the dispatcher on the other end, his ears picked up something strange. The sound of the elevated train that normally permeated the North End had been drowned out. In its place was a strange, entirely unfamiliar sound. Children playing at the foot of the commercial street tank stopped and stared up at the colossal vessel in confusion and awe. Laborers ceased their hammering. Newspaper hawkers quieted. 
horse-drawn carriages stopped dead in the street. All was quiet, except for the pervasive noise so deep the people of the North End could feel it vibrating in their teeth and jawbones. It was a deep, ominous, gurgling rumble that resounded through the neighborhood, bouncing off the bricks of the tenements and warehouses. It was as if some primordial subterranean beast had awoken and was making his destructive way to the Earth's surface. Then, at 12.30 p.m., a crack of metal against metal echoed through the streets. The sound was immediately followed by an unearthly, grinding shriek like nothing McManus or the other North Enders had ever heard before. The officer spun around in the direction of Commercial Street. He watched in utter horror as the humongous molasses tank seemed to disintegrate before his very eyes. Rivets burst from the tank's seams like bullets from a machine gun. Plates of solid steel peeled back from the structure as easily as skin shucked from an onion. Support beams snapped like toothpicks. The first panicked cries of workers and a few children in the tank's immediate vicinity tore through the winter air as a wall of thick, dark liquid blackened out the sky. Momentarily frozen with fear, McManus recovered just in time to spit a few words into the receiver. He shouted, Send all available rescue vehicles and personnel immediately. There's a wave of molasses coming down Commercial Street. Thanks for listening to Natural Disasters. Next week, we'll cover the devastation wrought on Boston's North End by the collapse of the Commercial Street tank, as well as the Purity Distilling Company's attempts to cover up its neglectful business practices. For more information on the Great Molasses Flood of 1919, amongst the many sources we used, we found Dark Tide, the Great Boston Molasses Flood of 1919 by Stephen Puglio to be extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Natural Disasters and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all your favorite ParCast originals like Natural Disasters for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Natural Disasters on Spotify, just open the app and type Natural Disasters in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Natural Disasters was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Isabella Way. This episode of Natural Disasters was written by Jake Flanagan, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher and stars Tim Johnson and Kate Leonard. <laughs>